yes, I've got it, good. Uh, folks, I, I really love coming back here. I get this opportunity once in a while, and it's brilliant to be here. I love to stand at the back because it's nice to, I just like to see you worshipping and be part of that from the background. But also as people walk through the door, this, honestly, this gives me a wee taste of heaven. And this band could certainly play there. And in fact, all the good things that we do here will carry on into the new world to come. Isn't that interesting? That nothing that you do that is good here is in vain in some way. I don't know how it carries on. Whatever work you do selling drugs to kill dogs, for example, Steve McCaffrey. <laughs> My poor dog, a couple of Christmases ago, his back legs went and Steve came around and says he'd need the blue juice. And as I carried my dog up to Dr. D's vets, and he put him up on the table, writing off this big tube of parry had come out. <laughs> anyway, whatever good you do, whatever good you do at Carrick Rangers, doing the announcements, whatever you do as your Spanish teaching takes you, or your work in greater uh, Ballyclare Youth for Christ, or wherever it may be in the grounds of Ballyclare Primary, or here in this wonderful establishment. Whatever good that you do in those places or Porta Down College, of course, Grant, they wouldn't forget that. Or Johnny, whatever you do, just make a money and sell and stuff. <laughs> whatever good you do has a value. Selling uh, shoes to people who want to run barefoot. That's a strange dichotomy, isn't it? Anyway, whatever good you do in this world somehow carries on. I love that. And so as I saw people walking through the door, I thought, gosh, these are people I don't really see that often. Big Hillis there with his giant beard. Johnny, Johnny, all these people coming through. So it's, it's, it actually gives me a tiny, small insight into what heaven may be like, all right? And a lot of people here, of course, I don't know, and that also represents what it'll be like up there. But we stand together and we sing and we worship. And you've got that right. You know, you've got the first thing right. It's great. Let me take you on a little journey. It's a bit of a fun journey to start with, and then we'll see where we go. This time last year, I got a phone call. I was in my office in Carrick Ferguson, West Street, and my friend said to me, what are you doing this summer? So there you go. I'm standing down in my alleyway uh, down on West Street, and my friend rings me, and he says, what are you doing this summer? I said, nothing. Um, he says, do you want to go? I've just won two tickets to the World Cup final. Now, there's two reasons for talking about this. It does relate to what I'm going to say, and I just love talking about it, and I don't think I've got that much mileage left in it. <laughs> uh, so he rang and he said, my wife doesn't want to go, but I've just won two. My wife doesn't want to go. Even if you didn't like football, you would go and just lie in Copacabana Beach. So two British Airways flights to Rio on the 11th of July, Staying in this hotel, oh sorry, we met a couple of superstars along the way, some of you might remember Ollie Myers, great thing about him is look, if you look really close, he had a massive zit, just there, <laughs> massive, unbelievable, he was a lovely guy, for those of you who love football a bit like me, here's one other legend I met in our hotel, Cafu, uh, he won the World Cup twice, he was captain for, for Brazil when they won the World Cup, and we came along to this hotel that his wife didn't want to go to, had been taken over by Budweiser um, because they were one of the main sponsors. Do you not like Budweiser? Be more Carlsberg. <laughs> oh, okay, that's fine. Um, me too, to be honest. But anyway, um, there's the, the Budweiser Hotel. Absolutely, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of pounds they spent redoing this. I mean, the whole facade of the hotel was changed. Lights on it. Upstairs, that's a swimming pool. 
People aren't walking on water, as we sang about, but they're actually covered that over and they turned that into a bar and a, the DJs playing, the Fat Boy Slim and all these bands playing every night, the fireworks, the whole thing. It was red carpet. You couldn't get in unless you wore your pass, which looks a bit like this. I'll just get it on just to remind me. <laughs> it's very nostalgic. So you, you got your pass to get in. You had to do there were massive bodyguards there. They would not let anybody in. Um, and of course, my friends, uh, my friend won all this. It was all completely free. He also won two season tickets to whatever Premier League team he wanted to. And yesterday he was over watching Crystal Palace beat Liverpool. He's not a Crystal Palace fan. He's a Liverpool fan. But anyway, um, and he won £5,000. Not a bad prize. And he didn't even text he didn't spend any money entering the competition he just simply emailed six times and won it so there you go what do you say whenever somebody rings you now to be fair he'd been ringing me all day I had Ahmed and the guys over from London and because it said well you know what you're what I'm like trying to even when your name comes up I ignore it but whenever it says I'm unknown or caller withheld then I don't normally pick it up but somebody's selling me stuff so it took to 10 past three for me to open up this message and to answer this phone. I thought I'd better answer this. Um, and my friend Des says to me, see if you hadn't picked up, I was going to go to the next person on the list. I know, because he needed to know by four o'clock that afternoon all my passport details, everything. And the way he'd picked was he put three names in a hat. He didn't know who he wanted to go. He thought this would be fair. Three names in a hat. One was the bass player from my band. One was his other mate um, from, from golf. Pulled mine out, boom, if I hadn't have taken the call, that was me, done. But I took the call, and yes, I've got more to show you. Uh, so this hotel, we're standing at the bar right there on top of Copacabana Beach, looking out over the beach. Um, and interestingly, of course, the favelas are just behind you, but that's another story for another time. Might come in later on. And as we're standing there, the massive parties happening the night before the World Cup, and just standing over there is a group of girls getting their photo taken, and Des nudges me, and he says... Is that Rihanna? <laughs> I said, I don't know. <laughs> and it was. <laughs> it was Rihanna. And I didn't even get a selfie with her because I didn't know that's how bad I am. Also at the party that night was uh, Jared Butler. Some of you girls might know him. Some of you men may want to be like him. Ashton Kutcher. There's another one who was at the party upstairs. And by the way, everybody's immaculately dressed. Me and Des were in our Brazil tops. <laughs> Northern Ireland shorts and a pair of flip-flops. <laughs> we didn't quite get the gravitas of this <laughs> celebration. As we waited to go to the World Cup final, um, <laughs> this beautiful girl walked past. Now, you know, I'm a well-married man, and, but I did notice her, you know, just noticed her fleetingly path. Oh, of course. Do you see that, Des? Uh, <laughs> we actually played a game, and I feel we're amongst friends, but um, we played a game as we walked down Copacabana Beach, and we said, let's see how long we can go without seeing a beautiful girl. <laughs> one Mississippi, two. Oh, one Mississippi, two. Oh, we got to seven. Uh, anyway, so it's, it's a beautiful place, but this girl walked past, and I thought, gosh, she's lovely, and she walked out, and the next thing, all the crowds at the front of the hotel shouted, you know, Shakira. And of course I was like, Wah! 
but it was too late. All right, it was too late. She was already with the crowd and then away in the car and she sang, of course, at the World Cup final. All these people that I actually, well, saw them from a distance or missed. Because we arrived on the 11th, we thought it was only appropriate that we should uh, celebrate in the appropriate way. Um, <laughs> can we just keep the audio channel up? Is that okay? Just for the whole, that'd be great. Thank you, cheers. <laughs> The Argentinians were there to add the drums to us, so we got an Argentinian um, reporter to record this for us. So we had an absolute ball, and even later on that evening, we remembered that if we stood at the side of the cameras, <laughs> we could get on TV. Uh, <laughs> so we got... <laughs> We get lots of messages from people saying, is that you on TV? Yeah, I see your husband on TV. He's wearing his Northern Iron top. So we did that, and we were kissing our badges to Martin O'Neill and all the rest, and he was just pretty much ignoring us. Uh, one person we did meet, though, was um, this wonderful pundit, Adrian Childs. Um, and he actually was very nice, and he said to us, um, boys, why don't you wait here, and I'm just going over to the hotel, and we can come back, and we can have a beer. And we said, no problem. And then we left him <laughs> and watched the match down the beach, so I don't know if he's still waiting for us there or not. But anyway, we had an absolute ball there. And the best part of it, of course, was, oh, sorry, let me go back one. Apologies. Oh, can I go back? Can I go back? Can I go back? Okay, we'll go back. Yes, we're going back. Good. Apologies about this. I just went too far there. Oh dear. Right, okay. The best part of this was, of course, getting my actual ticket. They didn't give you them until the day itself because there's a lot of, you know, people are trying to steal these things. The day I got that ticket, one of the first things I did was I went and checked out how much it cost. On the day I got it, which was about this time last year, sorry, I just let this run again. Um, the day I got offered this ticket, this ticket, which is $660 to buy face value, was $4,000 at the end of May. I have no idea what price it was on the day of the World Cup final. Yesterday, they were selling tickets for Stephen Gerrard for over £1,000. You know, this could have been worth thousands upon thousands. So when we got our ticket, there we go. I think we're back on song here. When we got our ticket, we were so, so excited. And we went off to the Maracanã and we saw Messi and we saw Neuer. And we, it was brilliant, unbelievable. So... Why do I tell you that? Well, because I like to talk about the World Cup final, but it leads us into exactly where we're going to go with this sort of journey that we're on today. Um, when I was nine years old and up to that period and a lot of the period after that, I honestly thought that being a Christian was just my ticket. That is really what it was. It was my ticket into the best event ever, even better than the World Cup and the Maracanã with Shakira and everybody else. I thought it was my ticket into this world to come, into this age to come. And really then you just lived a fairly good life, but really you were waiting for the day when you would escape this world and go to your home. Heaven is our home. I'm not sure that that is actually theologically correct, and we should maybe think about some of the songs that we sing in that there, but um, we, we can talk about that another time, but um, not too sure that heaven is actually our home, because then that negates this whole part of life that we have right now, this whole part of life that Jesus spends most of his time talking about, and we in Northern Ireland have spent an awful lot of our time um, talking about the world to come, all right, and getting people into heaven, yeah? Now, if God wanted you all to be in heaven, as soon as you became Christians, you would not be here today worshiping him. You would have just been whoosh, taken up into heaven. That would be a great thing, wouldn't it? Because 
let's be honest, I know a lot of you, you know me well, some of you, and you know that we've gone through a lot of struggles and pains together. Would it not be better if this world is of no value just to be taken up into heaven right now? I would do that if I was God. That would be a smart thing to do. See if his people whom he loves a lot of pain and suffering, just take them away. Please don't get me wrong. I know some of you sit here today and wish, gosh, God, come, please come. And honestly, I do pray that more often now than I did before. Come, make this world complete. Make it the way it was meant to be. You see, we wake up on a tiny little dot. There it is. I love telling this as I go around schools. And it's one of the things I'll miss next year when I come back in here. But I'll still continue to tell it to the people that will listen. Um, This tiny little dot is earth from 3.7 billion miles away. I'm sure I've shown you it before. It was a photo taken 25 years ago uh, by Voyager 1. Um, And here we are. We wake up in this tiny little spot of earth. It seems insignificant. It seems like a mote of dust suspended in the sunbeam. It's not even the biggest planet in our solar system. As we go out, Jupiter, Saturn, they're much bigger than Earth. We're insignificant in a tiny little solar system, in a tiny little galaxy, with a tiny little star called the sun as our source of heat and light, which, by the way, would take, it would take a million Earths to fill one sun, just so you can get a scale of the sun. And the, the sun is like a dot in the Milky Way galaxy which is 100,000 light years across, never mind all the other billions of galaxies where we live. As we go out into deep space, we find much bigger orbs, much brighter systems, much bigger stars. And we go out to the biggest one of all, I think it's the next one. And there it is. There is the largest known star in our universe. So far, so far. And as we zoom out across it, we find, there we are, <laughs> all right, okay, it makes you feel small, it makes you feel small, it makes you feel insignificant, and yet, and that tiny little dot, as far as scientists know, and they're coming to accept this more and more, this is the only dot that they know on that has life, this is the only dot that has people, and they're not even searching for people anymore, they're searching for the tiniest microscopic life that they can find, to show that there may be possibility, and Where in the 60s they thought they would find hundreds or thousands of planets like this, now they're starting to realize that actually to get one planet that holds all the things that we need to make life, it's very, very unlikely that they will find it, even in the vastness of space that's out there. So this tiny little planet must be be significant. It must be significant in some way. And God has placed it, boom, for whatever reason, here and you on it right here, right now. So we wake up on a tiny little planet. We wake up with a tiny little life. The whole span of the universe, now, these are things that I've grown to accept. The universe may well be 13.8 billion years old. Scientists know a lot more than me, right? That does not mean that has to mess with your faith because that, that is of no consequence how old this universes. The only thing of its consequences, why is it here and who put it here? And we can answer those questions and we can certainly talk about them. So if the world is 13.8 billion years that way, and here we are right in the middle of it, and it's interesting actually the way that they judge that time is by the distance that light has traveled. Yeah. What's the first four words that God speaks? Let there be light. <laughs> interesting. Yeah. God speaks light. <laughs> He hasn't even made the sun yet. 
He did that in the dark. Impressive. Boom. He says, let there be light, and light travels 13.8 billion miles. And here we are, right here, right now, with a tiny little 70, 80, 90, 40, 30, 20 year life. Yeah. There's a lot to come after you as well, I imagine. I mean, God may wrap it up tomorrow. Don't know if he will. He's patient. He holds himself back. Another talk some other time. If I can do that, that'd be great. The love of God shown in his restraint. But anyway, there's a lot to come after you. There's a lot has come before you. But here you are on a tiny little dot for a tiny little time. And what are we going to do with it? I think sometimes our theology about what comes after this life and our beliefs about it sometimes inhibit what we do and who we are on this planet right here, right now. Some of you, I mean, I know a lot of you guys here. Some of you have been involved in many churches before, Presbyterian churches. You've been, many of you have been in Glen Abbey with me. Some of you have been in Glen Gormley Presbyterian with me. Maybe I'm the common factor, actually. Maybe that's why people leave churches. Is it really? Talk to me after, please. And, and it's, do you know what? I think it's great. I think it's great that you find a place that is your home. I am so happy for you. Good. And I'm in Glen Abbey and I'm home there. All right. And I'm, yeah. So let's just do what we do and be in the place where we want to be. And let's not worry too much about it. Anyway, this tiny little life. One of the groups that I spoke to was Gateway Church. Some of you I know have come from Gateway. And you may well even remember this. Because I'm not trying to negate the, the importance of what comes after our life and our eyes close in this world and we open up, up into the age to come. But this was set very clearly to me in something that we did there. And you, if you've been to Gateway, will know this story. And I hope this isn't too painful for you. Um, one of the uh, talks that I did back then was about living the dash. All right. When you leave this planet and somebody puts up a gravestone for you, they'll have Alistair Paul Bennett, 17th of the 4th, 1972, and then they'll have a dash. And then they'll have the date that I died. Yeah, that's going to happen. There'll be a wee dash there that marks out my life, your life, Mother Teresa's life, Martin Luther King's life, Stephen Gerrard's life, whoever it is, Cafu's life, Rihanna's life. It'll all be marked out by this tiny little dash. And so this morning we're thinking about what we do with this dash. This is in no means to diminish anything that comes after. And this picture shows it clearly. The week after I did that talk, Tim, my wee friend Tim, who works with me, was doing worship there. And he got all of Gateway, some of you were there, I think, to come up and write their name on the wall. So, Grantley, were you there? Yeah. So your name's probably on that wall, is it? Yeah, maybe. So Alan Grant, he's only 37. He looks a bit older, but he's... <laughs> Everybody came up and put their name up. I even put my name on it later. Alistair Bennett did it and left a dash. But some of you may know, and I don't know them terribly well, but I taught Sam, who's Dina Nimick's son. Um, and Dina came up on her crutches and wrote her name and her date of birth and then a dash to say, I'm going to live out this dash for Jesus. And then she wrote the name of her daughter, Sophia. And as you can see, um, Sophia just made it there to her sixth birthday because Sophia struggled with leukemia and you, I'm sorry to speak this I don't know this story completely but I know the church walked alongside them for that year or so where Sophia was going through that pain 
But isn't that a wonderful thing that she did at the end? Sophia's life, short, taken away prematurely, whatever way we want to talk about it or think about it. Not the way it was meant to be. Leukemia. Stephen Fry brought it up, didn't he, whenever he talked to Gay Byrne? Leukemia and children. Good point, Stephen. Good point. Let me tell you about it. But then, that's what Dean Nimmick would say to Stephen Fry. My daughter <laughs> is with Christ now. And her pain is gone. In the world to come, where everything is, where it was meant to be. Everything is as it was meant to be. Wow. Isn't that brilliant? That gives us a real picture. But here we are today, and Jesus speaks mostly about this. Mostly about this. About this life that we have here and now. Where is heaven? Where is the kingdom of God? It's there and then. It's here and now. It's there and then. It's here and now. Jesus speaks in those terms. That's not me. That's Jesus speaking in those terms. A story that comes to mind when I think about this is this story here. Um, and so um, a, a, a teacher of the law or a lawyer back in Jesus' times, he comes and asks Jesus a question about the age to come. And he says that there. He says, uh, teacher, what should I do to inherit life of the age? Uh, to, sorry, what is it? To inherit the life of the age to come. And Jesus says to him, well, what is written in your law? And do you know what the man responds? Anybody remember? So he's asked him, how do I basically inherit this life and the age to come? That big, long dash right, that goes on forever. Jesus says, do what is written in your law. And of course, the man says this. Let's see, boom. There you go. Love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your understanding, and... Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus used those words himself even to sum up the whole law. Love God and love your neighbor. <laughs> it's pretty simple. It's simple stuff, isn't it? Religion is very simple. And my friend Ian Crickshank, who's a Scottish biker, priest, Church of Ireland rector, um, he was asked in the bar one day, you never see a Scottish biker, priest, rector, whatever, in the bar drinking Guinness. But anyway, he was in there and somebody said to him, oh, do you know see all this religion stuff? It's very complicated. And he just said, yeah, loving God and loving your neighbor. And the guy went, oh yeah. <laughs> it's pretty straightforward actually. Jesus said, so the guy answers correctly. All right. Um, so the, the, he answers well. And then um, Jesus says to him, do that and you will live. Do that and you do these things and you will live. Do that and you will inherit this life of the age to come. Um, and then it says this here. The lawyer asks him, wanting to win his point, as the way N.T. Wright puts it. He wants to win the point over on Jesus. He's not really interested in the answer. He's just trying to win a point. He says, who is my neighbor? And of course, Jesus starts to tell a story once upon a time. There was a Jewish man. He was heading down from at Jerusalem, which you can see there. Okay. And Jericho would be about there. All right. So there's a Jewish man heading from Jerusalem to Jericho, but he gets set upon by guys because it's a, it's a dusty road. I was going to put pictures of it up and stuff. It's a real place. You can go and see it for yourself. Maybe some of you have been there. And he gets set upon by people. He gets beaten. He gets robbed. And now, to be honest, it, it, was, a very, it was probably the best route for a Jewish person to take. If you see Galilee up on the top, the Sea of Galilee, this is a modern map anyway, if you were coming like Jesus did from Galilee down to Jerusalem, you would not go through that big green bit which is now the West Bank, all right? 
because that was Sumerian places, and there was, there was always a risk of violence because the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other, despised each other. They both claimed their heritage back to Abraham. They both claimed their heritage back to uh, Moses, and they separated on it, okay? Um, so even Jesus would have come down, let me see if I can point it out, from there, down to Jericho and across to Jerusalem, he would have come down the Jordan Valley. That's the route even Jesus took. It was just a pragmatic wiser thing to do than walking right through the middle of a place where you may well be treated poorly. Of course, this man's lying, dying at the side of the road, and the priest comes by, a Jewish priest comes by, and instead of him going to help the guy, he walks on by on the other side of the road. I know this is a simple story, and you've heard it a million times. Fine, on he goes. The Levite comes along, another religious order from the Jewish community, and he does exactly the same thing. He walks on by. And the third person comes off, the unexpecting person, the Samaritan, the one that hated the Jews, the one who'd be standing there kicking him, stealing his money, hurting him, spitting on him, whatever it might be. He's the one who goes and tends to him. Yeah, cares for him. Now, this isn't just a nice moral story about, you know, go and do the same, you know, when you see... You know, we used to do it in school, like when you see a, a Celtic supporter lying at the side of the road and you support Rangers, go and help them, right? When you see a Man United fan lying at the side of the road, right, and they're big kitten all, and you're a Liverpool fan, don't go and put the boot in. Go and lift them up and help them, support them. It's more than that. It's so much more than that. Because our religion and our theology and sometimes our thought gets in the way of us actually getting engaged and getting our hands dirty on this tiny little dot with this tiny little life that we have right here on this earth. So what's the point of this story? Well, these Jewish people who walked on past were being good religious people. That was the point of the story. They were being good religious people. Because if you saw a man lying dead at the side of the road and you went and touched him, you become unclean. And for the next seven days, you have to do ritual washings. You can read about it in Numbers and different places in Scripture. So you have to do ritual washings. You are banned from going into the temple. These are religious people. They cannot go and do their service and their duty to God and praise the Lord. They can't do it because they have taken the time to touch somebody who was a corpse. And that meant that they were unclean. All right? Exactly the same for the Levite. He comes past. He's going to do his priestly duties. He's on his way to the meetings. Don't have time. Sorry. It wasn't that he didn't have time. It's not that he didn't care about the guy. He was putting his, the law of God that he believed was the law of God, he was putting it first, which was to not touch a corpse because that would make you unclean and then I couldn't go and worship. Of course, Jesus then turns it around a wee bit. Um, he says to the man, which one of these turned out to be the man's neighbor? And of course, the lawyer says, well, it was the third one, I don't think he even calls him the Samaritan, maybe he does, uh, it was the Samaritan, I'm sure that stuck in his throat to say that, the neighbor was the Samaritan, and he says, you go and do the same, you go and do the same, how many times have I been so busy in my meetings and in my activities and in my prayer meetings and in my whatever it might be that we do in our version of religion, right, that have made me miss out on the people lying, dying at the side of the road. I have done it. You know, we fill up our lives with busyness in our religious world and we can miss out on the people who are across the road or up the road or down the road who don't have enough to eat. Guys, I know you're well involved in this stuff. I know that I'm 
in some ways I'm speaking to the converted here, but how often does our religion and our theology and our thoughts about life to come and life here and our importance and the value of it, how long does it stop us? Or often does it stop us from actually getting involved with people right here on this earth right now? The Jews had a phrase. This goes way back to Exodus 24, okay? Just keep with me here. Keep with me. We're doing okay just for a minute or two. We go back to Exodus 24. Moses comes down from the mountains with his Ten Commandments. Now, people think he came down with these big... They were probably the size of your hand, right? And ten were written on this stone, and ten were written on this stone. There were copies, by the way. Okay, it wasn't five and five. It was ten and a copy in case he dropped one of them. That's, that's just a stupid thing. I know a joke about this, but I'm not sure if I can share it. <laughs> Moses comes down from the mountain. He says, I've good news and I've bad news. I got him down to ten. But adult, he's still one of them. Right, okay, sorry. Oh, damn it. Anyway, Bobby, you laugh at your own jokes. Um, Moses comes down with his Ten Commandments, and this is what the people say. They say these words. Now, I don't know what your Hebrew is like. I actually can read a wee bit of Hebrew. I did some of that when I was at college. And I can read this, but for us who aren't fluent, I'm not fluent. Those words from right to left, because that's the way you read it backwards, say, Na'asa Vanishma. Na'asa Vanishma. What does that mean? All the words that the Lord has spoken, the people say, as he comes down with his Ten Commandments, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do them and we will understand. We will do them and then we will understand. Love your neighbor as yourself. We will do it and then we will get it. You get, you understand that, don't you? How often in Northern Ireland religion do we expend so much time studying? I think that's great. I love it. I enjoy looking into things and finding out wee words like this and things that might help us. I'm not, that is very important. But how often do we spend so much time in those things that none of them actually get worked out into actually going and touching something? How often do those things, as we go to our next Bible study or cell group or home group or whatever way you might work it in here, or wherever we might be, how often does that stop us from going and spending half an hour down in the pack club in Glenfield where they might need some volunteers or down with Christians Against Poverty or something like that there, where we, under, we do what God has spoken and then we understand it. That's all I can encourage you to do today is take one thing that Jesus has said, turn the other cheek when somebody insults you, turn the other cheek, do it and then understand it, right? Go the extra mile, go a bit further, when somebody asks you for a coat, give them their shirt as well, all right? I read a story of a guy called um, Bishop Juniper, strange story I read this week. He was so into sharing and caring and giving that he, just, he literally just gave his clothes away to people, poor people that he met in the street. His bishop had to tell him to stop doing it. He says, I do not want you to give away any more clothing. So the man's conflicted because he wants to do his understanding. Right. So he goes out in the street, he finds this poor guy, he says, my bishop has told me, this is honest to goodness truth, this is from the 13th century, he says, my bishop has told me not to give you my clothes, but if you rip them off my back, I'll not stop you. <laughs> I thought that was fantastic. If you rip them off my back, you can have them. Let's not let our religion or religion get in the way of us doing 
what Jesus said. Not in the law, but the law of love that he came to inaugurate and live and give to everyone on this tiny little dot, on a tiny little speck with a tiny little life. Let me show you a couple of wee stories to illustrate this and then we'll be done. You may have heard this girl before and Paul was there when we went to see this little girl um, back in 2013 when we went to Ethiopia to visit some of our kids there. And guys, I would love you to bring a team. There, there's, do it and you'll understand it. I don't even think about it, just do it. And then you will start to understand and you will never go back. You'll always want to go back. Right? Things will change for you dramatically. It changed me, made me leave this place for five years. Yes, I'm coming back in, but for five years I went and did what I needed to do. And that'll be in me forever now. This little girl came to us. She's a little Muslim girl. Thankfully, religion didn't cause stand by me to say, sorry, you're Muslim. <laughs> Can't come in. Um, we don't, wouldn't bother with you. There she is, beautiful little girl, Aribe. Uh, when she first came to us, my friend Tim Johnson, who I've mentioned before, that we took this photograph of her. She had, and you might have seen this before, but I want to finish off this story for you because I haven't finished it with you. And she had a terrible growth in her arm. So it's basically the size of her head. Um, and she was seven years old there. She was terribly, terribly in pain. Her mum was a Muslim lady. We had a doctor with us. There was no doctor in the town. She just came and said, please help me. The doctor lanced it, young doctor, no, no anesthetic or anything, just sliced it to check out whether it was solid or whether it was pus or whatever it would be, I don't know, technical. Um, he was concerned about it because it seemed to be a solid sore cyst. So we sent her up to the doctors in Addis Ababa um, and they recognized this as a tumor and they removed it. Um, so there she was in hospital with her right arm gone. Okay, so we drastic but yeah saved her life um so she comes back to us and our director arrives he's a big white man from from Essex right big old head teacher who started this all up years ago went away to Lebanon to help some of the boys there and that was his eye-opening experience that helped him see his place in this tiny little dot and little Rebe came back to our home and there she is learning to write with her left hand very quickly after hair's growing smile on her face um, great big smiles of little Rebe. When our director came into the town, he had to walk through the marketplace. Big white man, very obvious, right? And Bokadi, you know, there's not that many white, there are white people at all apart from when we come. The mother, who's a Muslim lady, saw David in the distance and ran. She ran to him. Now, women in Ethiopia don't run, all right? They don't, it's disrespectful. So she just runs. She can't hold this joy in. And she grabs him embraces him in the middle of the marketplace. You know, if you've been to any of these sort of uh, developing countries, the marketplace is where it all happens. She grabs him and she says, thank you for saving my daughter. And he says, I didn't save her. Jesus did. It's the kind of things he says. He's cool. Like. Um, I'll never think of that. I go, oh, let me do that again. Uh, I didn't save her. Jesus saved her. And this Muslim lady says, well, then Jesus can have her. Jesus can have her. Aribe came and lived in our home. We looked after her wound. We cared for her. She had friends there. Her mum came and visited her. Her mum had six other kids in a little mud hut, and we supported and helped her. That's what we do. But it was better for her to live with us, all right, in that, that period. So that was great. That was a year and a half, 2011. Paul and I went out in 2013, and I was so excited to see little Aribe, little Aribe. 
haven't seen her since, you know, since this, these pictures when she had the big sore and I haven't seen her since her arm had been removed and seen her singing and all, but I never actually, you know, really played with her, had fun with her. So excited. So we get, to, we get down to the little village and Arebe's not there. She's up in the hospital. She's got an infection, we think, in her arm. So we're going to go and check that out. I only stay there for a few or four days and then we go away to another place, Dembodola, where we've just started a new school, 280 kids coming to it. Same again. Let's go, poorest kids. Um, then we get a message up there and say the cancer's back. It's in her lungs. It's everywhere. We contacted a surgeon in Northern Ireland. Only two surgeons in the world that can do this. One of them is in Northern Ireland. He says, there's, there's no point. There's no point. Our doctors here who've been great support to us just sent over kind of palliative care stuff just to care for her and ease her pain. And our director, who's 70, stayed an extra six weeks, nursed her, played with her, read with her, helped her, smiled with her, did whatever he needed to do, touched her. Yeah. She had plenty to do back in the office. Plenty of religious things to do back home. Stayed there, gave up the time. On May the 5th, it was just two years ago, um, at three o'clock in the morning, Arebe just went into the life to come. Big long dash. Yeah. Um, the Muslims came and they wrapped her up on her pink duvet, right? And they carried her out to bury her before 12 o'clock, as is their custom. Um, big hoo-ha, a big fuss about it all. Little girl dying, it was a big fuss. And they put up a kind of makeshift marquee for them quickly. And David, our director, big white Christian man, um, walks arm in arm with Arebe's mum all the way to the burial site. He sits down in the front row with the mum, Muslim and a Christian together. And the imam from the temple comes and he says, you, points at David. He says, I want you to speak. Well, David, now David's never stuck for words. He says, I didn't know what to say. <laughs> yeah, whatever. He stood up and he started to tell me what he said. And he started to say about how Arebe was now at peace, how God had brought her home, how she now had life with him. Her troubles were over. And they celebrated the good news of the kingdom of God, which extends beyond this life. Isn't that wonderful? See, whenever you start to reach out, whenever you start to care, whenever you start to touch people, all of a sudden religious barriers break down. Me and Paul stood um, talking to a teacher at our staff do a couple of years ago. Had a couple of pints of Guinness. We're chatting away out the front of the 10 square. Um, he started to share with us how he was an atheist and how he didn't, you know, people had told him his little son who'd been prematurely born, some of his family had told him that his son was going to go to hell. Cheers. That's great news for somebody, isn't it? Yeah. Your premature child, all the trauma going through that, and then somebody tells you your son's going to go to hell. And me and him just said and said, we're so sorry that somebody would ever say that to you. How dare they? And we started to talk to him about Jesus and we started to talk to him about love and we started to talk to him about real religion and we had a couple, he had a couple of beers in him like you know so a lot of smiling a bit of giggling but I'll tell you that guy got that for those few wee seconds just when we reached out and touched through the religion that separates that's what it does this written law separates the law of Jesus Christ touches it reaches out I've loads of stories I could tell you. I'm, I'm going to finish now. There's, oh, is a there's little Zing. zing. I'll just whiz her on. 
Um, so when she was found in, in Burma, there she was found with her two, her two wee brothers. The dad had left them at the side of the road for the Buddhists to come and pick them up. Um, our carer came past and saw them crying their eyes out and said, what's wrong? My dad's just got out of prison. He doesn't want us anymore. Or their mummy had left years before because she didn't want to care for any of them. And they're going to send us to the Buddhist monastery and we know we're going to be collecting food for the monks and that's our life over. Okay, take the kids back to the dad. That's what the, the carer did and says to the dad, can we look after your kids? We look after your kids for you. And now they live in this home in Kalemio village and there they are smiling, getting on with their life. Buddhist kids, we said to the Buddhist monk, he's meant to have a vow of poverty, but he had a massive Samsung tablet, which is kind of weird, and like Ray-Ban glasses. Uh, weird. <laughs> they might have been Ray-Beans, but they looked like Ray-Bans. <laughs> we said to the monk, we would love to give you 30 places in our school, right, for your poorest kids. He says, but you'll want them all to become Christians. You'll want them all to become Christians. And we said, no, not that we don't, but we said, we will not make them become Christians. Let them come to our school. We just want to give them the best education and we want to love them and we want to care for them. Do you think, and even Ahmed said to the, the monk, um, or I said, if your kids don't want to come to our Christian assemblies, that's fine, they don't have to. As if a Christian assembly is going to turn somebody into a Christian. Would it not be the love and the care of the people who are supporting them? Yeah, it's very short-sighted from both sides. Reaching out and touching communities. The community we're touching most at the minute is this community. We started working there four years ago. And there's Kathmandu. There's the epicenter of the, the earthquake. And I just want to tell you one wee story about a girl here and then we're done. I mean, that's what we're talking about. And that's out in the open. You know, if you're inside, you're in big, big trouble. Um, this story goes on to tell a story about a little baby that was found under the rubble a day after um, this happened. The family had to sleep out in tents all night, even though they could hear their child crying, but because it was so dark, they couldn't get to it. And in the morning, they were able to, to lift this little child out um, and save his life. I don't know, if there, there's the wee boy being, being lifted out now. I'll, I'll not labor this for just too long, okay? But there's the wee baby. And of course, 8,000 people have lost their lives, at least in this. There's Kathmandu. The red bit is where it hit most. Kathmandu is there. Our school is down here, um, and our school was shaken by this, but not destroyed. Thankfully, all the girls had to move out of the home. Uh, the second blast came up here, sorry, um, up where the, where the Mount Everest is, up near the Himalayas, and it had a massive effect as well, and we still don't know the damage that that has caused. In Nepal, we have kids that come to school. They're the poorest kids. They're despised kids. They're untouchable kids. Nobody literally will touch them or play with them. They come from the hills down to our school um, and we basically give them like a bursary. We sponsor them to come, all right? Many of them come down and stay there for the whole week and they stay in our home and then they go to the school, which is next door. And there's the girls in their wee bunk beds. They're just classrooms that have been turned into like a wee living quarters for them uh, where they're cared for during the week. Um, and one of the girls that came through our school was this little girl. This is little Rhoda, all right? Um, little Rhoda came from one of the villages that was destroyed first in the earthquake, but she was one of the first people that was able to communicate with us to say that she was fine, which was great news. Little Rhoda was one of the first girls to come to our school, and she is the first person from her village um, to even get to go to school and then on to university. 
She's a Dalit child. You may have heard of the Dalits before. The Dalits are the lowest caste system, even below that. They're, they're called the untouchables. There's one group of them are called the Sunar, which means they're zero. It actually means zero, nothing. So you imagine Rhoda's growing up in this place. Nobody's playing with her. Nobody's touching her. Nobody's having fun with her, apart from kids from her own community. Even in my bag over there, I'll just grab it. Even in my bag here, I have um, a little cup that whenever Rhoda and her family would drink from, if they were in the village, they would have to drink from that cup and break it. These are mass produced because nobody would even touch a cup that a Dalit child would touch. It's just incredible, isn't it? Boom, smash it every time. So that was Rhoda growing up. Hopes, none. Dreams, no. No chance of going to school. No chance of going to university. She's just finished three years as a nurse in university. And she wrote with joy to say, I'm the first person from my village to ever go and do this. Somebody who nobody would touch. Somebody who no one would reach out and play with. Now, she's amongst the rubble of the people in her community, pulling them out. I wonder what those people think. <laughs> huh? You know, oh, don't touch me, let me die here. Maybe, would they do it? Or would they want to be thankful that this little Dalit child had a chance to go to school and was able to be pulled out of the rubble? Folks, this law of love that Jesus takes us through, it's far greater than the laws that we have written about what religion should look like. This law always reaches out this law always makes itself vulnerable. This law always cares. This law always gets its hands dirty. When I come back from Africa, every time, my son asks me every time, Dad, why is there a picture of your fingers on your iPhone? I always take a picture of my fingernails. Why? Because it reminds me that my hands are dirty in the work of the kingdom of God Heaven, here and now, there and then, right here, right now, with my tiny little dash on this tiny little dot. Your eyes may not be open to the things that I have seen. That's fine. Your eyes may be open up to people who have mental health problems, right? Your eyes may be opened up to people who have gone through breakups in their marriage. Your eyes may be opened up to people who struggle with gender issues, homosexuality. Your eyes may be opened up to helping people who have financial pain or despair. Whatever your eyes are opened up to, may the religion of Jesus Christ, the law of love, allow your hands to reach out and touch those people on this earth so that they may enjoy the age to come right here, right now. Let's pray. Our God, our Father, King of the universe, Lord, we thank you for this tiny little dot that you have put us on with thought, with plan, with purpose for this time. Lord, we do not know how long or short it may be. It wasn't that long for Sophia. It wasn't that long for Arebe. It wasn't long for Martin Luther King. It wasn't long for others, Lord. But it may be 80 years for us or 90. God, whatever we have on this day that you have given to us, may this day, we reach out our hands and touch those who need to know the law of love in their lives. And Lord, if we wake up tomorrow, may this day our hands stretch out for those who need a touch from the King of Kings. And if we wake up the day after, may on that day we reach out our hands to love.
Lord, help us to get religion clear in our own minds as we love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, with all our understanding. And we love our neighbor as we love ourselves. In Christ's name, God's people say together, amen. Thank you so much, Alistair. Um, uh, I've been looking at CCV's website. They're launching a compassion center and they've said this thing, the rescued become the rescuer. And I love that because God's rescued each of us and he wants us to become the, the rescuer. Um, someone was praying um, before church and they felt like um, there's, there might be someone here whose marriage is in trouble, maybe about to break up even, and God really wants to reach out to you and rescue you. That's a really serious thing, but if that's you and you want to talk privately or have someone pray with you, please come and speak to Paul or I. Um, we've really run over time, so we're going to have to wrap it up. But And if you've got kids, go and get them right now and kiss the kids' leader and say sorry for keeping them for 10 extra minutes. And if you want prayer because you want to get your hands dirty, like Al said, whether that's in Ethiopia or here, please, we'd love to pray with you. So please don't miss that opportunity as well. Thank you so much.